Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is week one of Jules Verne, and we've got Castle of the Carpathians. Uh, you know, it may have inspired the topography for Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, it very likely could have, and you know, not a lot of stuff happened in Transylvania and literature, and you know, I'm pretty sure Bram Stoker probably read this. But hey, uh, how about the fact that we're doing Jules Verne all month long? And after that, we're going to be doing the uh, Underground City, Mysterious Island, uh, that one about the moon and the one about the Antarctic of Jules Verne this month. We're probably going to have some experts on the show talking about Jules Verne and talking about Jules Verne's influence on literature and fiction and science fiction for sure. And yeah, yeah, it's going to be a cool, fun time. And you know what you should do? If you like the show, you should let us know by going to Facebook.com, look for Black Clock Audio Tales or People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos if that's the one you like better. And let us know that you like the show. Review us, rate us, whatever. Let people know that we're out there. Share us. Tell people about it. Be like, you know what? The announcer guy kind of sucks, but if you skip ahead, probably about like, I don't know, I'm guessing about three minutes, you'll get to the story. You can start listening to it. And sometimes he pipes in for commercials, but hey, you know what? It's free. So you know what? Let people know it's free and that I'm not going to put up a paywall. And that... People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, is a weekly podcast, but we put out enough every week that you've got stuff all week long. I ran out of stuff all week long, and then I remembered, oh shoot, I've got that post stuff that I edited last week that's coming up today, and then I was like, awesome. And then I remembered I also had some unspooled to listen to, but I'll talk about that. No, no I won't. I don't talk about other podcasts on my podcast. Anyway, so thank you for listening to this podcast, and also, I do talk about other podcasts. You can check out um, Dave's Corner of the Universe bits and segments that we do here. Hopefully, sooner than later, we'll have Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And we've got Black Clock Audio Tales, which you're listening to right now. We do special segments from time to time with folks like Ken Hyde or Andrew Migliori or Andrew Grace or... Um, Let's see, sometimes we get David Heath to talk about stuff, and sometimes we're lucky enough to get uh, Scott Glancy. We've had Rossi Lockhart from Word Horde, and we've even had Rodney Anonymous from the Dead Milkman on the show. So check us out, pgttcm.com, for all the back episodes. Here we go. Recording by Joe DeNoia, Somerset, New Jersey. The country people and travelers who passed backwards or forwards over the Vulcan Hill knew only the castle of the Carpathians from its exterior aspect. At the respectable distance at which fear kept the bravest the worst and its environs, it presented to the eye but an enormous mass of rocks, which they might take to be ruins. But within the enclosure, was the castle as dilapidated as they supposed? No, and within the shelter of its solid walls and buildings, the old feudal fortress could have accommodated quite a garrison. Vast vaulted halls, deep excavations, innumerable corridors, courts of which the stonework was hidden beneath a lofty fence of herbage, subterranean redoubts to which the light of day never penetrated, narrow staircases contrived in the thickness of the walls, casemates lighted by the narrow loopholes in the external wall, a central dungeon with three floors of apartments sufficiently habitable, crowned by the crenellated platform, and among the other buildings of the enclosure, 
interminable corridors capriciously entangled, mounting to the platform of the bastions, diving to the depths of the lower structure, with a few cisterns in which the rainwater was caught, the overflow feeding the torrent of the naiad, and then long tunnels, not stopped up as was believed, but giving access to the Vulcan road. Such was the state of the castle of the Carpathians, the geometrical plan of which was as complicated as that of the labyrinths of Porcina, of Lemnos, or of Crete. As Theseus was led by his love for the daughter of Minos, so was it the power of love, more intense and more irresistible, which had led the Count within the intricacies of the castle. Would he find an Ariadne's thread to guide him, as the Greek hero had done? Franz had but one thought, to get within the enclosure, and he had to get there. But one thing might have struck him, and that was that the drawbridge, which had always been raised, seemed to have been expressly lowered to admit him. Perhaps he might have been uneasy when the gate shut suddenly behind him, but he gave no thought to these things. He was at last in the castle where Rodolf de Gortz was keeping Lestilla, and he would sacrifice his life to reach her. The gallery into which Franz had advanced was wide, lofty, and with a vaulted roof, and it was quite dark, and its pavement was broken up so that it had to be trodden carefully. Franz took to the left wall and kept to it, feeling his way along the facing, the efflorescent surface of which rubbed off on his hands. He heard no sound except that of his steps, which echoed in the distance. A draft of warm air with an ancient, frowsy smell swept gently past him as if it were an opening at the other end of the gallery. After passing a stone pillar which served as a buttress in the last angle to the left, Franz found himself in a much narrower corridor. He had only to open his arms to touch the walls. He went on in this way, his body bent forward, feeling with hands and feet, and endeavoring to discover if the passage were a straight one. Two hundred yards after passing the buttress, Franz felt the wall curving off to the left and take the exactly opposite direction fifty paces further on. Did it return to the outer wall, or did it lead to the foot of the dungeon? Franz endeavored to quicken his advance, but every moment he was hindered by a rise in the ground against which he stumbled, or by some sharp angle which changed his direction. From time to time he would reach some opening in the wall leading off to lateral ramifications. But all was dark, unfathomable, and it was in vain he sought to make out where he was in this maze in a molehill. He had to retrace his steps several times on ascertaining that he had gone where there was no thoroughfare. One thing he had to fear was that some badly fastened trapdoor would give away under his feet and drop him to some underground cell from which he could not escape. And so whenever he touched a piece that sounded hollow, he took care to cling to the walls, though he went forward with an ardor that hardly left him time for reflection. At the same time he had neither gone upward nor downward. The floor was clearly on the level of the inner courts arranged among the different buildings within the enclosure and it was possible that the passages ended in the central dungeon, perhaps at the foot of the staircase. Certainly there ought to exist a more direct means of communication between the gate and the central buildings. When the Gortz family had lived there, it had not been necessary to enter these interminable passages. A second gate, which faced the gate opposite the first gallery, opened onto the place of arms, and in the center of which rose the keep, but it had been stopped up and Franz had not been able to see where it had been. For an hour the young Count continued his advance at a venture listening if he could hear any distant sounds, and not daring to shout for Lestilla lest the echoes should carry to the upper floors of the dungeon. He was in no way discouraged, and would go on until strength failed him, or some impassable obstacle compelled him to stop. But although he took no notice of it, Franz was already nearly exhausted. Since he left worst, he had eaten nothing. He suffered from hunger and thirst. His step was not sure, his legs were failing him. In this warm, humid air, his respiration had become irregular, and his heart beat violently. It was nearly nine o'clock when Franz, putting out his left foot, found no ground to tread upon. He stooped down, felt that there was a step, and then another below it, 
It was a staircase. Did these stairs go down to the foundations of the castle, with no way of exit? Franz did not hesitate to go down them, and he counted the steps, which went off obliquely from the passage. Seventy-seven steps were thus descended to the level of the second passage, which led to many gloomy windings. Franz went along these for half an hour, and, tired out, had just stopped when a luminous point appeared several hundred feet in advance. Whence came this light? Was it merely a natural phenomenon, the hydrogen of some will-o'-the-wisp that lighted itself at the depth? Was it a lantern carried by one of the inhabitants of the castle? Can it be Lestilla? murmured Franz. And the thought occurred to him that a light had already appeared as if to show him the way into the castle when he was wandering along the rocks on the Orgal Plateau. If it had been Lestilla who had shown this light at one of the windows of the dungeon, was it not Lestilla who was now trying to guide him amid the sinuosities of these subterranean passages? Hardly master of himself, Franz bent down and looked ahead without moving. It was more of a diffused effulgence than a luminous point that seemed to fill a sort of vault at the end of the passage. Franz crawled towards it, for his limbs could scarcely support him, and passing through the narrow entrance he fell on the threshold of a crypt. This crypt was in good state of preservation, about twelve feet high, and circular in shape. The arches of the vault sprang from the capitals of eight dwarf columns, and met in a hanging boss, in the center of which was a glass vase filled with a yellowish light. Facing the entrance between two of the columns was another door which was closed, and the large rounded bolts showed where the outer ironwork of the hinges was fastened. Franz dragged himself up to his second door and tried to move it. His efforts were in vain. Some old furniture was in the crypt. There was a bed, or rather a bench, an old heart of oak, on which were a few bedclothes. There was a stool with twisted feet. There was a table fixed to the wall with iron tenons. On the table there was a large jug full of water a dish with a piece of cold venison, a thick piece of bread like a sea biscuit. In a corner murmured a fountain fed by the narrow stream, the overflow of which passed away at the base of one of the columns. Did not these arrangements show that some guest was expected in this crypt, or rather a prisoner in this prison? Was this prisoner Franz, and had he been lured by stratagem into the interior of the castle? In the trouble of his thoughts, Franz had no suspicion of this. Exhausted by want and fatigue, he dashed at the food on the table quenched his thirst with the contents of the jug, and then fell on the rough bed, where a sleep of a few minutes might recruit his strength. But when he tried to collect his thoughts, it seemed as though they escaped like the water which he might try to hold in his hand. Would he then have to wait for daylight to recommence his search? Had his will so far forsaken him that he was no longer master of his acts? No, said he, I will not wait. To the dungeon. I must reach the dungeon tonight. Suddenly the light in the vase went out, and the crypt was plunged in complete darkness. Franz would have risen, he could not do so, and his thoughts went to sleep, or rather stopped suddenly, like the hands of a clock when the spring breaks. It was a strange sleep, or rather an overpowering torpor, an absolute annihilation of being which did not proceed from the soothing of his mind. How long the sleep lasted Franz did not know. His watch had run down and did not show the time, but the crypt was again bathed in artificial light. Franz jumped off the bed and stepped toward the first door, which was open all the time, then toward the second, which was still closed. He began to reflect, and found he could not do so without difficulty. If his body had recovered from the fatigues of the night before, he felt his head empty and heavy. How long have I slept, he asked. Is it night, or is it day? Within the crypt, nothing had changed, except that the light had been renewed, the food replaced, and the jug filled with clear water. Someone, then, must have been there while Franz was deep in his overpowering slumber. It was known that he was in the depths of the castle. He was in the power of Baron Rodolphe de Gortz. Was he doomed to have no further communication with his fellow men? That was not possible, and, besides, he would escape, for he could do so. He would retraverse the gallery that led to the gate, 
he would leave the castle. Leave? He then remembered that the gate was closed behind him. Well, he would try to reach the outer wall, and by one of the embrasures, he could try to slip down into the ditch. Cost what it might, in an hour he would have escaped from the castle. But Lestilla, would he give up on reaching her? Would he go away without rescuing her from Rodolphe de Gortz? Yes, and what he could not do single-handed, he would do with the help of the police, which Roscoe would bring from Carlsberg to the village of Wurst. They would rush to the assault of the old stronghold, they would search the castle from top to bottom. Having come to this determination, he decided to put it into execution without losing an instant. Franz rose and was walking toward the passage by which he had come when he heard the noise behind the other door. It was certainly the sound of footsteps approaching very slowly. Franz put his ear against the door, and, holding his breath, he listened intently. The steps seemed to be coming at regular intervals, as if they were going upstairs. No doubt there was a second staircase which connected the crypt with the interior courts. In readiness for whatever might happen, Franz drew from the sheath his hunting knife, which he wore at his belt and gripped it firmly. If it were to be one of Baron de Gortz's servants who entered, he would throw himself on him, take away the keys, and make it impossible for him to follow him, and then Franz would rush along this new road and try to reach the dungeon. If it were the Baron de Gortz, and he would recognize him, although he had only seen him once at the moment the Stilla fell on the stage of San Carlo, he would attack him without mercy. However, the footsteps stopped on the landing which formed the outer threshold. Franz did not move, but waited until the door was opened. It did not open, but a voice of infinite sweetness was heard by the young Count. It was the voice of Lestilla. Yes, her voice a little weakened, her voice which had lost nothing of its inflections, of its inexpressible charm, of its careless modulations, that admirable instrument of the marvelous art, which seemed to have died with the artiste. And Lestilla repeated the plaintive melody which he had heard in his dream when he slept in the saloon of the inn at Worst. Nel Giardino de Miri Fiori. Andiamo mia cuore. The song entered into Franz to the depth of his soul. He breathed it, he drank it like a divine liquor, while Lestilla seemed to invite him to follow her, repeating, Andiamo mia cuore, andiamo. But why did not the door open to let him through? Could he not reach her, clasp her in his arms, and take her with him out of the castle? Stilla, my Stilla, he shouted, and he threw himself against the door, which stood firm against his efforts. Already the song seemed to grow fainter, the footsteps were heard going away. Franz knelt down trying to shake the planks, tearing his hands with the ironwork, calling all the time to Lestilla, whose voice had died away in the distance. It was then that a terrible thought flashed through his mind. Mad, he exclaimed, she is mad, for she did not recognize me and did not reply to me. For five years she had been shut up in the castle in the power of this man, my poor Stilla. Her reason has left her. Then he rose, his eyes haggard, his head as if on fire. I also, I feel that I am going mad, he repeated. I am going mad, mad like her. He strode backwards and forwards across the crypt like a wild beast in its cage. No, he repeated, no, I must not go mad. I must get out of this castle. I will go. And he went toward the first door. It had just shut silently. Franz had not noticed it while he was listening to the voice of Lestilla. He had been imprisoned within the enclosure, and now he was a prisoner within the crypt. End of chapter 13 Recording by Joe DeNoia, Somerset, New Jersey Franz was thoroughly astounded. As he had feared, the faculty of thinking, of comprehending matters, the intelligence necessary for him to reason on them, was gradually leaving him. The only feeling that remained was the remembrance of Lestilla, the impression of the song he had just heard, and which the echoes of this gloomy crypt no longer repeated. Had he been the sport of an illusion? No, a thousand times no. 
It was indeed Lestilla he had just heard. It was indeed her he had seen on the castle bastion. Then the thought returned to him, the thought that she was deprived of reason, and this horrible blow struck him as if he were about to go out of his mind a second time. Mad, he repeated. Yes, mad, for she did not recognize my voice. Mad, mad. And that seemed to be only too likely. Ah, if he could only rescue her from this place, take her to his castle of Krajoa, devote himself entirely to her, his care and love would soon restore her to sanity. So said Franz, a prey to a terrible delirium, and many hours went by before he was himself again. Then he tried to reason coolly, to collect himself amid the chaos of his thoughts. I must get away from here, he said. How? As soon as they reopen that door? Yes. During my sleep they come and renew this food. I will wait. I'll pretend to sleep. A suspicion occurred to him. The water in the jug must contain some soporific substance. If he had been plunged in this heavy sleep, in this complete unconsciousness, the duration of which he did not know, it was because he had drunk the water. Well, he would drink no more of it. He would not even touch the food on the table. Someone would come soon, and then... Then... What did he know of it? At this moment was the sun mounting toward the zenith, or sinking on the horizon? Was it day or night? Then Franz listened for the sound of footsteps at either door, but no sound reached him. He crept along the walls of the crypt, his head burning, his eyes glaring, his ears throbbing, his breath panting amid this heavy atmosphere, which was only just renewed through the chink around the doors. Suddenly, near the angle of one of the columns on the right, he felt a fresher breath than usual reach his lips. Was there an opening here through which air came in from the outside? Yes, there was a passage he had not noticed in the shade of the column. To glide between the walls, to make for an indistinct clearness which seemed to come from above, was what Franz did in an instant. There was a small court five or six yards across, with the walls a hundred feet high. There seemed to be a well which served as an outer court for this subterranean cell, and gave it a little air and light. Franz could see it was still day. At the top of the well was a small angle of light which just shone on the upper margin. The sun had accomplished at least half its diurnal course, for this luminous angle was slowly decreasing. It must be about five o'clock in the afternoon. Consequently, Franz must have slept for at least forty hours, and he had no doubt this must have been due to the soporific draft. As he and Rothko had left worst on the 11th of June, this must be the 13th, which was about to finish in a few hours. So humid was the air at the bottom of this court, that Franz breathed it deeply and felt all the better for it, but if he had hoped that an escape was possible up this long stone tube, he was soon undeceived. To try and climb that smooth, lofty wall was impractical. Franz returned to the interior of the crypt. As he could only get out through one of the doorways, he came to see what state they were in. The first door, that by which he had come, was very solid and very thick, and it kept in its place on the other side by bolts, working into iron staples. It was, therefore, useless to try and force it. The second door, behind which he had heard Lestilla's voice, did not seem to be so well preserved. The boards were rotten in places, and it might be possible to clear a way through them. Yes, this is the way, said Franz, who had recovered his coolness. This is the way. But he had no time to lose, as it was probable someone would enter the crypt as soon as he was supposed to be asleep under the influence of the soporific draft. The work went on more quickly than he had expected. The moisture had eaten into the wood around the metal clasp, which held the bolts against the embrasure. With his knife, Franz managed to get the round part off, working noiselessly, and stopping now and then to listen and make sure that nothing was moving on the other side. Three hours afterwards, the bolts were free, and the door opened with a scroop on its hinges. Franz then returned to the little court so as to breathe a less stifling air. At this moment, the sun no longer shone across the opening of the well, and consequently must have sunk beyond Redgazette. The court was in complete darkness. 
A few stars gleamed above, as if they were seen through the tube of a long telescope. A few small clouds drifted along the intermittent breadth of the night breeze. A peculiar haze in the atmosphere showed that the moon must have risen above the eastern mountains. It was evidently about nine o'clock at night. Franz went back to the crypt where he ate some of the food and quenched his thirst from the spring after throwing away the liquid in the jug. Then, with his knife at his belt, he went out by the door which he had shut behind him. And now would he meet the unfortunate Listella wandering in these subterranean galleries? At the thought his heart beat almost ready to burst. As soon as he had made a few steps he stumbled. As he had thought, there was a flight of stairs, of which he counted the steps. Sixty only instead of the seventy-seven he had come down to the threshold of the crypt. Consequently, he was about eight feet below the level of the ground. Having nothing better to do than to follow the dark corridor, the sides of which he could touch with his outstretched hands, he hurried on in that direction, and he went on for half an hour without being stopped by door or railing. But the large number of turns had prevented him from knowing in what direction he was going with regard to the wall which faced the Orgal Plateau. After halting a few minutes to get his breath, Franz continued his advance, and it seemed as though the corridor were to be interminable when an obstacle stopped him. This was a wall of bricks. Tapping it at different heights, he could find no sign of an opening. This was the only way out from the corridor. Franz could not help exclaiming. All his hopes were shattered against this obstacle. His knees bent, his legs gave way, and he fell at the foot of the wall. But just on the ground, the wall had a narrow crack in it, and the bricks, being rather loose, shook as he touched them. This is the way, said Franz. Yes, this is the way. And he began to pull out the bricks one by one when there was a noise of something metallic on the other side. Franz stopped. The noise had not ceased. At the same time, a ray of light swept across the hole. Franz looked through. It was the old chapel that he saw. To what a lamentable state of dilapidation time and neglect had reduced it. The roof had fallen in, a few only of the ribs perfect on their swelling columns, two or three pointed arches threatening to fall, a window frame with flamboyant mullions thrust out of place, here and there a dusty tomb beneath which slept some ancestor of the family of Gortz, and at the end a fragment of an altar with the re-reduce still showing traces of sculpture. Then the remains of the roof still over the apse which had been spared by the storms, and then over the ridge above the entrance the shaking belfry from which hung a rope to the ground, the rope of the bell which occasionally rang to the terror of the people of Worst. Into this chapel, deserted for so long, open to all the rigors of the Carpathian climate, a man had just entered, holding in his hand a lantern, the brilliant light of which shone full on his face. Franz instantly recognized him. It was Orphanic, that eccentric individual whom the Baron had made his only companion during his sojourn in the large Italian towns, that oddity he had seen along the streets gesticulating and talking to himself, that incomprehensible scientist, that inventor ever in search of some chimera, and who doubtless put all his inventions at the service of Rodolphe de Gortz. If Franz had retained any doubt as to the presence of the Baron at the castle of the Carpathians, even after the apparition of Lestilla, this doubt was changed to certainty when he saw Orphanic. What was he going to do in this ruined chapel at this advanced hour of the night? Franz tried to discover, and this is what he saw. Orphanic, stooping over the ground, was lifting up a few iron cylinders to which he was attaching a line, which he unrolled from a reel placed in one of the corners of the chapel. And such was the attention he gave to his work, that he would not have seen the young Count if he had been able to get near him. Ah, why was not the whole Franz had begun to enlarge sufficient to let him pass? He would have entered the chapel, he would have hurled himself on Orphanic, he would have compelled him to lead him to the dungeon. But perhaps it was all as well that he could not do so, for if the attempt failed, the Baron de Gortz would have doubtlessly made him pay with his life for the secrets he had discovered. A few minutes after the arrival of Orphanic, another man entered the chapel. 
It was Baron Rodolphe de Gortz. The never-to-be-forgotten physiognomy of this personage had not changed. He did not even seem to have aged, with his pale, long face, which the lantern illuminated from top to bottom, his long gray hair thrown back behind his ears, and his look glittering from the depths of his black orbits. Rodolphe de Gortz went near to examine the work on which Orphanic was engaged, and this was the conversation exchanged between the men in short, sharp tones. End of chapter 14 Recording by Joe DeNoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Is the connection with the chapel finished, Orphanic? I have just done it. Everything is ready in the casemates of the bastions? Everything. The bastions and chapel are in direct connection with the dungeon? They are. And after the instrument was made the current, we shall have time to get away? We shall. Have you made sure the tunnel onto the Vulcan is clear? It is. They were silent for a few minutes while Orphanic took up his lantern and directed its light into the corners of the chapel. Ah, my old castle, exclaimed the baron, you will cost them dear who would storm your walls. And Rodolphe de Gortz pronounced these words in a tone which made the count shudder. You've heard what they say at worst, the baron asked Orphanic. Fifty minutes ago I heard on the wire what they were talking about at the King Matthias. Is the attack to be tonight? No, not until daybreak. When did this Rotsko return to worst? Two hours ago, with the police he brought from Crossburg. Well, as the castle cannot defend itself, said the baron, at least it can crush under its ruins this Franz de Telec and all his people with him. Then, after a few minutes, he continued, And this wire, Orphanic, will they ever know that it put the castle in communication with the village worst? I will destroy it, and they will know nothing about it. And now the hour would seem to have come to explain certain phenomenon which have occurred in the course of our story, the origin of which ought to no longer be concealed. At this point, it must be remembered that these events happened in one of the closing years of the 19th century. The use of electricity, which had justly been called the soul of the universe, had been brought to its highest perfection. The illustrious Edison and his disciples had finished their work. Among other electrical instruments, the telephone then worked with such wonderful precision that the sounds collected by the diaphragms could be freely heard without the aid of ear trumpets. What was said, what was sung, what was even whispered could be heard at any distance, and two persons separated by thousands of leagues could converse as easily as if they were side by side. For some years Orphanic, the Baron's inseparable companion, had been in all that concerns the practical applications of electricity an inventor of the first order. But, as we know, his admirable discoveries had not been welcomed as they deserved. The learned world had taken him for a madman, whereas he was a man of genius, and hence the inappeasable hatred which the despised inventor bore to his fellow men. It was under these circumstances that Baron de Gortz had met Orphanic, who was then in the depths of misery. He encouraged him in his work, he helped him with money, and finally he engaged him to be his companion, on condition that he alone should profit by any inventions. In fact, these two eccentric personages were made to understand one another, and since their meeting they had never separated, not even when the Baron de Gortz was following Lestilla from town to town in Italy, while the melomaniac was intoxicating himself with the singing of the incomparable artiste, or Fanic was busy in completing the discoveries made by electricians during these later years, perfecting their adaptations and obtaining the most extraordinary results from them. After the events which terminated the dramatic career of Lestilla, the Baron had disappeared without anyone knowing what had become of him. When he left Naples, it was in the castle of the Carpathians that he had taken refuge, accompanied by Orphanic, who had no hesitation in shutting himself up with it. When he resolved to bury his existence in this old castle, the Baron's intention was that no inhabitant of the district should suspect his return, and no one try to visit him. He need not say that Orphanic and he had the means of providing liberally for their daily wants. In fact, a secret communication existed with the road over the Vulcan, and by this road an old servant of the Baron's, whom nobody knew, 
brought in all that was necessary for the existence of Baron Rudolph and his companion. In reality, what remained of the castle, and particularly the central dungeon, was less dilapidated than was believed, and even more habitable than its inmates required. Orphanic, provided with all he wanted for his experiments, busied himself with immense researches in physics and chemistry, and of these he proposed to avail himself in his attempt to keep off unwelcome visitors. The Baron de Gortz received the propositions with eagerness, and Orphanic built special machinery for spreading terror in the country by producing phenomenon which could only be ascribed to diabolic agencies. But in the first place it was necessary for the Baron de Gortz to be kept informed of what was passing in the nearest village. Was there any means of hearing what his people were talking about without their suspecting anything? Yes, if a telephone communication could be established between the castle and the large saloon of the King Matthias, where the notables of worst were accustomed to meeting every evening. Orphanic managed very skillfully and very secretly, and in the most simple manner, a copper wire covered with the insulating sheath had one end fastened on the first floor of the dungeon, and was then laid under the waters of the Nyad up to the village of Worst. This part of the work accomplished, Orphanic, going himself out as a tourist, came to spend a night at the King Matthias, and there connect the wire with the inn saloon. It was easy for him to bring up the end, from the bed of the torrent to the height of the back window which was never opened. He then fixed a telephonic instrument which was hidden by the thick foliage, and with that connected the cable. As the instrument was ingeniously adopted to emit as well as receive sound, Baron de Gorse could hear all that was said at the King Matthias, and make himself heard whenever he chose. During the first years, the tranquility of the castle was not troubled. The evil reputation it enjoyed was enough to keep the people of Worst away from it. But one day, that on which our story began, the purchase of the telescope led to the smoke being noticed escaping from the dungeon chimney. From that moment, interest was reawakened, and we know what happened. It was then that the telephonic communication proved useful, for the Baron and Orphanic can keep themselves posted up on what was passing in the village. It was by the wire that they knew that Nick Deck had undertaken to visit the castle, and by the wire the threatening voice entered the room to endeavor to keep them away. When the young forester persisted in his determination in spite of the menace, the Baron resolved to give him such a lesson that he would have no desire to try it again. That night, Orphanic's machinery, which was always in working order, produced a series of purely physical phenomenon intended to carry terror throughout the district. The bell was rung in the old chapel, intense flames were shot forth mingled with sea salt, giving a spectral appearance to everything. Powerful sirens were worked from which the compressed air escaped in terrible groans. Diagram outlines of monsters were projected onto the clouds by means of huge reflectors. Iron plates were laid about the ditch in communication with electric batteries, and one of these plates caught the doctor by his iron-shod boots, while another had given the forester a shock at the moment he laid his hand on the drawbridge. And so the Baron thought that after the apparition of these prodigies, after the attempts of Nick Deck which had ended so badly, terror would reach its height in the district, and that neither for gold nor silver would anyone approach even within two good miles of this castle of the Carpathians, evidently haunted by supernatural beings. Rodolphe de Gortz thought himself safe from all unwelcome curiosity when Franz de Telec arrived in the village of Worst. All that passed between him and Jonas and Master Colts and the others was immediately known to him along the wire in the Nyad. The Baron's hatred of the young Count was rekindled by the memory of the events which had occurred at Naples. Not only was Franz de Telec in the village a few miles from the castle, but there before the notables he was deriding their absurd superstitions and demolishing the fantastic reputation that protected the castle of the Carpathians. And he was even undertaking to warn the Carlsberg authorities so that the police might come and scatter the legends to the winds. And so the Baron de Gortz resolved to allure Franz de Telec to the castle, and we know by what means he had succeeded. The voice of Lestilla, sent into the inn saloon by means of the telephone, had led the young Count to turn aside from his road to visit the castle. The apparition of the singer on the platform of the bastion had given him an irresistible desire to enter. 
A light shone at one of the windows of the dungeon had guided him to the gate, which was open to let him in. In this crypt, lighted electrically, in which he had again heard that wonderful voice, where food was brought him while he was in a lethargic sleep, in that crypt in the depth of the castle, the door which was closed to him, Franz de Telec was in the power of the Baron de Gortz, and the Baron de Gortz intended he should never get out of it. Such were the results obtained by this mysterious collaboration between Rodolphe de Gortz and his accomplice Orphanic. But to his extreme disgust, the Baron knew that the alarm had been given by Rotzko, who, not having followed his master into the castle, had warned the authorities at Carlsberg. A detachment of police had arrived at the village of Worst, and the Baron de Gortz would have a strong force to contend with. How could he and Orphanic defend themselves against a numerous party? The means employed against Nick Deck and the Dr. Patak would not be enough, for the police did not believe in diabolic intervention. And so they had resolved to destroy the castle completely, and were only waiting for the moment to act. An electric current had been prepared for firing the charges of dynamite which had been buried in the dungeon, the bastions, and the old chapel, and the arrangement would allow the Baron and his accomplice having time to escape by the tunnel on the Vulcan Road. After the explosion, of which the Count and a number of those who had scaled the castle walls would be the victims, the two would get so far away that no trace of them would be discoverable. What he had just heard had given Franz the explanation of many things that had happened. He now knew that telephonic communication existed between the castle of the Carpathians and the village of Worst. He also knew that the castle was about to be destroyed in an explosion that would cost him his life and be fatal to the police brought by Rotzko. He knew that the Baron de Gortz and Orphanic would have time to get away, dragging with them the unconscious Lestilla. Ah, why could not Franz rush into the chapel and throw himself on these men? He would have knocked them down, he would have stopped their injuring anyone, he would have prevented the catastrophe. But that was impossible at the moment, might not be so after the Baron's departure. When the two had left the chapel, Franz would throw himself on the track pursue them to the castle, and with God's help would settle with them. The Baron and Orphanic were already in the apse. Franz had not lost sight of them. Which way were they going out? Was there a door opening onto the enclosure? Or was there some corridor connecting to the chapel with the dungeon? For it seemed as though all the castle buildings were in communication with each other. It mattered little if the Count did not meet with an obstacle he could not surmount. At this moment a few words were interchanged between Baron de Gortz and Orphanic. There is nothing more to do here? Nothing then we can leave each other. You still intend that I should leave you alone in the castle? Yes, Orphanic, and you get off at once by the tunnel onto the Vulcan Road. But you? I shall not leave the castle until the last moment. It is understood that I am to wait for you at Bistritz? At Bistritz. Remain here, Baron Rodolph, and remain alone, if that is your wish. Yes, for I wish to hear her. To hear her once again during the last night I shall pass in the castle of the Carpathians. A few moments afterwards the Baron de Gortz and Orphanic had left the chapel. Although Lestilla's name had not been mentioned in this conversation, Franz understood. It was of her that Rudolf de Gortz had just spoken. End of chapter 15